Gospel of John this morning, the ninth chapter. Again, so good to have everybody with us, our guests. John chapter 9, starting at verse 1. It says, And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, Neither has this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest or displayed or revealed in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay and said unto him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. And he went his way, therefore, and washed and came seen. Amen. For probably just a little while this morning, I want to preach to you from this title, The Window of Opportunity. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your presence. We thank you, Lord, for these faithful people that are in your house. Lord, you know every need that is here. You know the condition of every heart, Lord God. And you've spoken to us through the gift of the Spirit. And I pray, Lord, that as your word comes forth, Lord, that faith would rise to meet it that it would be mingled together with your word, that it would be fruitful in us and through us. Lord God, we pray, I ask you to anoint me to bring your word this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The question from the disciples to Jesus in this passage gives us a glimpse into the way that they thought about sin and the consequences of sin. Uh, It seems as though this idea of this man suffering from blindness as as a consequence of his or someone else's actions was not uncommon. They thought that because this man was suffering in one form, that somebody must have done something to cause this suffering. Some writers, if you look at some commentaries, they suggest that the Pharisees of that time believed in something that is sometimes called the transmigration of the soul, which if you haven't heard of that, that's okay. But the idea behind that is that a soul could migrate from one life into the next and that that soul would face consequences or suffering in that next life for previous wrongdoing. It's a similar kind of idea to the belief in reincarnation that some false religions have in the world today. But it's not a scriptural idea. It's not a scriptural idea at all because in the conception and birth of a new life when a child is born, every single time it is a unique, original person, body, soul, and spirit that comes into existence. It is not something that is moving from generation to generation, but each of us is created unique, no two of us identical, no two of us exactly the same, no matter how similar we are, we are created, each of us, with an individual body, soul, and spirit. And God wants to transform our lives. That's why we're here this morning. He wants 
to make us into new creatures, but it's not from one generation to another, but that transformation, if it is going to happen, is going to happen in this life. Right now, while we are alive, while we have the ability and the opportunity to make that choice, the Bible says that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day where we get an opportunity to choose to be transformed. We do believe that sin has consequences. I hope you believe that it has consequences in this life, but especially on into eternity. And it is true that the sins of others can have an impact on our lives. That is definitely true. People having suffering and heartache introduced into their lives by others that is of no product of their own action. It's not their own fault. It's not because of something they did, because of something that somebody else did. There are parents whose lives of sin impact their children. Sin is usually an action against another person. Not always, but usually an action against another person. So it only makes sense that our sins will mark the lives of others. Very few of us sin in a bubble or in a vacuum or in some way that doesn't impact somebody else because we're all connected somehow to someone and our choices have consequences. Amen. But the sins that I will answer to God for, the actions that I must own are the ones that I do. They're the ones that I commit. I will not go to hell for your sins and you will not go to hell for mine. And in just the same way, I cannot be saved for you and you cannot be saved for me. It happens between each of us individually and God. Amen. We, we understand that the consequences of sin were introduced from the beginning when you read the book of Genesis from the fall, the disobedience of Adam and Eve. God told them before they disobeyed him. He said, if you eat of that tree that I have told you not to eat of, you will surely die. Some people read that story and when they ate that fruit and they didn't drop dead, they think that somehow God got it wrong. But death definitely happened. They died in two levels. Firstly, spiritual separation from God. The relationship that Adam and Eve had with God was broken and never the same again. Secondly, their bodies begin to degenerate. Not overnight, but day by day. Suddenly they were susceptible to weakness and illness and disease because when the, these bodies die, we, we die in this life because of the corruption in our bodies that was introduced through sin. Amen. Our nature was corrupted. We know that. Our thoughts, our feelings, our actions were corrupted when sin was entered into the human race. But our physical structure was also corrupted. That's why we have illnesses. That's why we have disease. That's why we have death. But it's important to understand that that is an overarching consequence of sin that is introduced to humanity as a whole. God is not sitting in heaven at some giant screen allocating illness and disease to individuals. He's not sitting there saying, well, this one will have heart disease and I'm going to give this one cancer and I'm going to give this one whatever disease that you can think of and imagine. That's not how it happens, but rather it is simply the corruption that is in our bodies because of sin that makes us susceptible, that makes our bodies slowly over time, break down, and eventually die. It happens to the righteous. 
It happens to the wicked. You go to any cemetery, there are good people, there are bad people. There are young people, there are old people. But sooner or later, the Bible says that it is appointed unto man once to die. And I think we should do what we can to look after these bodies. I think we should do what we can to take care of ourselves. But no matter how healthy you live, I don't care if you have kale three times a day. If you do, do not invite me to your home. doesn't matter how cautious and careful you are, you will die. Because these bodies are corrupted because of sin. There are times... Although God is not sitting on His throne handing out personal illnesses, there are times that God does get directly involved and afflict people. And as much as we might not like to think about it, kills people when He chooses to. You can go to the book of Acts. You can read the story of Ananias and Sapphira. You can go to the Old Testament. You can read about Korah and those that rebelled with him. You can read about Aaron's sons, the priests, Nadab and Abihu who offered strange fire. You can read about the wicked kings that the nations of Israel and Judah had. There were times that God brought physical affliction upon them and even death. Often, perhaps not always, but often it was when their actions were having a direct impact on God's people. Ananias and Sapphira's consequences, I believe, happened because of the impact they would have had on the church that was growing and in revival at that time, and God removed that threat to his kingdom. Korah rebelled against Moses, against the God-appointed leadership, and God knew that that would have an impact on his people, and he removed that young man. I'm glad that God just doesn't seem to just smite people left and right whenever we make a mistake, but there are times that he does do that. But as a general principle, as a general principle, illness, disease, and any other kind of flaw that exists in humanity is a product of corruption that just resides in the human race. It's not cause and effect. It is in a big sense, not in a personal sense. Amen. You can, of course, contribute to that by your own actions. For example, if you abuse alcohol excessively, you may destroy your liver and other vital organs. So you have contributed to your own downfall. But that's a result of our own actions. Amen. But it is incorrect, and I think it's important we understand this, and this was something that the disciples obviously wrestled with in this passage, and that sometimes we have to confront the way that we think naturally. It is important, it's incorrect to assume that because somebody is afflicted by an illness, has a disease or a condition, that they have necessarily done something wrong, and that God is punishing them. That's not how it works. Otherwise, all of us would be diseased and dying and, and unable to get out of bed because we've all failed God. God does not do that. Amen. This blind man in our opening text in, in John chapter 9 had been that way since he was born, the Bible says. If you read the rest of the chapter, you'll find that by this stage it appears he is at least a young adult. Uh, when there's something of an interrogation as to how he was healed, It says that he is of age and able to speak for himself. So he he is at least a young adult. He's not a child. So we're talking decades of life, possibly at least 20 to 30, if not more years than that. And somewhere in the developmental process in his mother's womb, the corruption that exists in humanity caused a defect either in the function 
or the physical structure of his eyes. And he had never seen a thing. And Jesus rejected the idea that the blindness was a result of someone else's actions. He said, that's got nothing to do with it. He said, rather, it is an opportunity for the power of God to be demonstrated. And so the Bible says that he spat on the ground, that he made small little mud balls like clay, pressed them into the man's eye sockets, and sent him to wash. And the Bible says that he came again seeing that for the first time in his life, as he imagined, as he began to wash, that this is just my imagination, but you got to remember this man has never seen, so no light, darkness, all the days of his life. As the water is being splashed out of the pool of Siloam under his face, and that mud begins to clear up, there's something that his eyes are beginning to register. It's called light. He's never seen light before, but at first it's through this murky brown liquid that we know is muddy water that's on his face. But as that face gets clearer and clearer, that light gets brighter and brighter. And when he lifts his face and wipes his hand across his eyes, he can see everything for the first time. Amen. When Jesus said that it was an opportunity for the power of God to be manifest, does that mean that Jesus caused the blindness in this man's eyes before he was born so that he would wait decades to be healed by Jesus? Is that the way God operates? He would say, well, I'm going to be there in 20, 30, 40 years. I'm going to make that child blind so that when I show up, there's an opportunity. No, I don't believe that for a minute. What I believe Jesus was saying was that such is the power of God that he can step into the corruption of a sinful world use our brokenness to demonstrate his grace, his mercy, and his power. He wasn't saying, I made this guy blind. He said, sin, this is a product of sin. But he can step into brokenness and he can say, this is an opportunity for me to demonstrate what I am able to do. And I want you to know this morning that it does not matter how broken we are or how messed up our lives are. You are an opportunity for God to step in and demonstrate his power this morning. We use the expression, a window of opportunity, to refer to a limited time frame where something is possible. A time which will only be available for so long, and then the window will close. The Bible says that our lives are like a vapor, like grass that's here today, gone tomorrow. While we have breath in our lungs in this life, regardless of how much devastation and sin and corruption we have in our lives, we are windows of opportunity for God to manifest himself. We are a chance for God to do something. This man's blindness, which was not his own fault, presented the opportunity. It created an opportunity for God to reveal what he was able to do, but it was this man's faith and obedience in going to wash at a specific location that took advantage of the opportunity. Had he not obeyed Jesus' instructions, he would have stayed blind. He would have been a blind man with dirt in his eyes. But because Jesus said, do this, and he obeyed by faith, he received the miracle that God had offered him. Amen. We need to understand that faith and obedience are a powerful combination. Amen. If you've never been baptized in Jesus' name, 
you've never had your sins washed away, there is a window of opportunity for you to obey the Word of God. There is an opportunity where God says, if you will do what I say by faith, I will do what I say. Amen. Regardless of what you've done, regardless of what you've suffered at the hands of others, the voice of the Master is still saying, go and wash. Go and wash. But God, I've been like this all my life. I've, I've, I've got used to how I am. I'm, I'm with my limitations. God is saying, if you'll trust me, go and wash. If you'll hear what I have to say, go and wash and you'll come again sing. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Obedience and faith cannot be separated. They go together. One produces the other. Faith produces obedience. Obedience demonstrates faith. You cannot separate the two. Read the book of James if you don't agree with me. There is a demonstration that accompanies genuine faith. And when we are sick, the Bible also tells us in the book of James that we are to call for people, for the elders of the church to come and pray for us. To call for the elders is an act of faith that you believe that God can heal you. You know, whenever you say, I have a prayer need, we're going to pray for you. You know, there are some people sometimes that will post all over Facebook that they're sick and they're in hospital, but when they come to church, they can't open their mouths. The Bible doesn't say, if you're sick, post it online. It says, if you're sick, call for the elders, that they would anoint you with oil and pray the prayer of faith. If you're posted online that you're sick, waiting for me to notice, don't hold your breath. Pick up the phone, come to the front of the church, tap me on the shoulder, send me a message, whatever it takes, and say, will you please pray for me? Amen. That wasn't in my notes. But when we are sick, the Scripture teaches us to ask in faith for prayer. And the power of Jesus' name still heals the sick, still raises the dead, still causes the blind to see. I hope you believe that this morning. I know if we took the time today, we could stand and testify across this building of illnesses, conditions and diseases, circumstances where God has healed our bodies, where he's touched us, where he's delivered us. And we could testify for hours that the power of God is still available in the church today. But it is wrong to suggest that every time that we are sick and that every time someone has a terminal illness, that God will heal them. In case you think I've just squashed faith, give me a moment or two. If that was the case, why are there no 200-year-old people in this church this morning? If every time we prayed it was guaranteed that God would heal and deliver, then we should continue to live. You know, you have some 230-year-old lady staggers up to the front and says, Pastor, they're telling me that my heart's going to stop again. Will you pray for me? And you pray for her and she gets another 50 years. Doesn't work like that. Why not? Because it is appointed under man once to die. God can heal your body. God will heal your body. But he's not going to keep you alive forever. Not until we get to the other side. This is not a lack of faith. This is a proper understanding of faith. Sometimes you are God's window of opportunity in the miracle that you can testify of. Other times you are God's window of opportunity in the demonstration of your faithfulness when the miracle doesn't come. 
We have to understand that if God does not grant you the miracle that you petitioned him for, it means that he has another purpose and another reason that will not fit in the limits of your finite mind. Amen. God can be manifest, displayed, show up through both his miraculous healing power and his incredible keeping power. Both of those are demonstrations of the power of God. If you've ever read Hebrews chapter 11, you know that it is a list of great men and women of faith that God used, that God did great things for. Miracles. You've got Noah building the ark. You've got Abraham going out by faith. You've got Enoch walking so close to God that he was not, that God took him home. And on and on. You've got Moses who chose not to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, but rather to be with the people of God there. Example after example. But the end of the chapter talks about those that did not receive, that were shipwrecked, that were stoned to death, that were executed, that were slaughtered, that all manner of terrible things happened to. And it is a, that chapter is not saying these had faith and these didn't. That chapter is saying that regardless of what God did, all of these people had faith. Everybody in the chapter, even the ones that weren't delivered. Why did they have faith? Because they trusted God regardless. Three Hebrew children in the book of Daniel are threatened with the fiery furnace. The king's outraged because they won't obey him. And what do they say to the king? We're not careful to answer you. We're not, we don't even have to think about this. Our God is able to save us. But if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down. That's faith. Sometimes we think faith is always the miracle. Sometimes faith is being steadfast without the miracle. Thank you, Jesus. All of those people had faith. All of them in Hebrews 11 were a demonstration of the power of God. In the book of Acts, there is a wonderful young man. We're first introduced to him in chapter 6. He's a young man by the name of Stephen. Scripture says his qualifications was that he was full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. He got involved with serving people. He wasn't looking for a platform. He wasn't looking for a microphone or a pulpit but he was serving people. And in the midst of his service, and if you're a a younger person that wants to do great things for God, here is a key. If you're full of the Holy Ghost and you're willing to serve, in the midst of that service, he began to minister. And God began to use him to do the miraculous. And it caught the religious authorities' attention and he was brought before them to be tried and they sentenced him to death and they stoned him they just, and kill, he just throwing stones until he was dead. If you look into that, it was a horrible way to die. But that young man, while he was dying, looked up and said, I see heaven open. I see Jesus on the right hand of God. And he said, Lord, don't lay this sin to their charge. And the scripture says that he fell asleep or that he died. There is a deliberate reason why we are told that a young man by the name of Saul of Tarsus was standing there watching Stephen die, holding the coats of those that executed him. The reason that I believe we are told that was because Stephen's witness without deliverance troubled Saul of Tarsus. He had a hard time working out how this young man could be willing to die for Jesus Christ, how he was not angry and violent and struggling, but rather he was even extending forgiveness to his killers with his dying breath. God was manifest through Stephen. 
just as much as a blind man whose eyes were open. It made a difference to the Apostle Paul. It impact, I, you know, I don't believe that Paul would have been changed through seeing the miracle of a blind man's eyes being open. He would have d- dismissed that. But Stephen's steadfast faithfulness rattled the Apostle Paul. And when you get a chapter or two later and Paul's on his way to Damascus, still full of anger and fire against the church, and the Lord arrests him on the Damascus road, and he says to him, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. Something was already working on Paul. There was, a, there was a wrestling in Paul's spirit and in his mind of, well, this is what I believe. This is what we've always believed. And, but these people, there's something about them. Even as he arrested them and threw them into prison, there was something different about those people. Even those that were executed because of their faith that God did not deliver. There's something incredibly powerful about faithfulness without the miracle. That's not the version we like. If you give me a choice, will I take deliverance over endurance? I'm going to take deliverance every day of the week. And if you're honest, so will you. The Lord says, well, I'm going to give you the choice. You can have instant miracle or you can suffer for the rest of your life with no answers. There's only one. It's option A every single time. But faithfulness is demonstrated just as much in the receiving the miracle as in the continuing without the miracle. And that's hard for our natural minds because we think if I have enough faith, God's going to have to do this for me. If I pray for my family enough, they must be saved. If, if I fast so many days and pray so many hours and give so many dollars and r- remove every possible evil thing I can think of, God must surely. The issue is not God's reluctance. The issue is God's will and purpose. God is not stubborn that you have to twist his arm and get him in some kind of hammerlock and make him conform to your wishes. What he understands is that there is a bigger picture that you just do not see. And if it meant that Stephen had to die for Paul to be born again, for the kingdom of God to receive the greatest missionary that ever lived, the author of so much of the New Testament, the bigger picture mattered more. Stephen didn't get his answer. I wonder, and I'm only speculating, but I wonder if when Stephen found himself as he died in the presence of the Lord, he said, Lord, why did you allow that for me to to happen to me? Maybe God showed him what was happening in the church that he left behind. Maybe he saw Paul on the Damascus road. Maybe he saw, I don't know. I'm, I'm only speculating, but Stephen knew that God was in control. We live in a society that is so instantaneous gratification that it is hard for us to recognize that God tells long stories. That he's, God doesn't do two-minute commercials or 30-second commercials. He tells long stories. And what we have to get into our minds and our hearts to understand is that the story that God tells of our lives does not end in your grave. The end of that story is beyond your grave. So if you go into a grave without a miracle without a healing, without a deliverance, it's still going to be fulfilled. Because when you rise again with him, when that trumpet sounds, illness is gone, disease is gone, corruption is gone, heartache is gone, and we are glorified in his presence forever. That's the long story. That's the long story. Hallelujah. The disciples were looking for an explanation 
of why this man was blind that would fit within the boundaries of their own thinking. They wanted to be able to say, well, A plus B equals C, to explain it. And sometimes as Christians, when we go go through things that don't make sense, we feel a need to be able to explain and to justify what's going on. But God does not give you that luxury. That's what faith is. Faith is I will trust Him because our perspective or our view is not the same as God's. And so when I try to understand and explain everything in my life from the limited grasp of my own thinking, it leads to frustration. It can even lead to bitterness because I cannot work it out because I'm thinking of I must have done this so that he did that and he didn't give me this because I didn't do that. And God is saying, well, you look beyond yourself. But when you take Job's words and you make them your own in Job 23 and 10, but he knows the way that I take. And when he's tried me, I shall come forth as gold. The final step of that process might be when the trumpet sounds. It might be at the resurrection, depending on when the Lord comes back and whether we're alive or whether we're gone. But when we learn to resign ourselves and say, God, you know the way that I take. Job did everything he could. He said, I looked behind me. Couldn't find God. My left, my right, in front of me. Everywhere I looked, with my reasoning, with my understanding, I could not understand. I could not find God. I did not know what was going on and why he was allowing it. But he knows the way that I take. And when we understand that what God does and God does not do in our lives and what he allows and what he removes is looked at through the lens of eternity, it needs to change our understanding. Because if you're constantly looking for a reason that makes sense in this life, you want to understand the cause and effect, you'll never be satisfied with the outcome of your own reasoning. You know, we are required scripturally to be able to give an answer for the hope that we have. That means we need to give a reason for what we believe. That doesn't mean we have to be able to explain everything that happens. That means you have to be able to explain what what Jesus did for us, who Jesus is, why we live for Jesus. Not explain all the questions. Amen. But if we will surrender to the eternal purpose of God, offer ourselves to Him again as a living sacrifice, Romans chapter 12, we are a window of opportunity for God to be manifest through us. Thinking a lot about sacrifice during the week and some thoughts I feel like the Lord gave me to sort of put on the end of this message. There's a, a great contrast between the Old Testament and the New Testament and yet the Old Testament, everything that took place in the tabernacle and in the temple, and we're going to have some teaching on that uh, next month, but all of that took place literally in the Old Testament was an example of something that's happening spiritually in the New Testament and was a type of Jesus. And there's so many patterns and examples that it's impossible for that to be a coincidence. But so much sacrifice took place. And we know that in the New Testament is for the church that Jesus was the sacrificial lamb for our sins, that he paid the price for our sins. And because of that, He replaced the Old Testament sacrifice. That Passover lamb was not needed anymore because he became the lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. But when you look into it and you study it in the Old Testament, not all sacrifice was specifically for sin. 
Some was for worship. Some was for thanksgiving. Some was for consecration. Or when we would say, God, I want to commit my life to you. When you study these things, the Old Testament, you'll find that sacrifice was continually offered. At the very least, there was an evening and a morning sacrifice every day. And then there were special sacrifices and feast days. And then there were people that were bringing offerings because of things they'd done or things they needed. And it was a constant thing that was happening. And it was, to us in the natural, it was a, a graphic scene of blood and death, burning flesh. You know, we live in a, a society where, you know, most of us at least, you know, don't raise our own livestock. You know, we, we don't, we're not used to killing animals for food and anything like that. I mean, we hunt our food in the supermarket. It's, it's already pre-prepared for us. Kind of glad about that, I've got to be honest. But in this, their society was a lot more agricultural. And, but, but this altar of sacrifice, and if you look into this great big brass altar where sacrifice was constantly being added, there's animals and fire and wood and over and over again. And the thing is, when you burn something, you end up with ashes. You end up with ashes. And I got to thinking about those ashes, and I'm not a scientist by any stretch, but in, at a basic sense, fire needs three things. It needs an ignition or a spark. Matches is the easiest example of that. It needs fuel, wood, whatever is being burnt, and it needs oxygen. And when you have all of those three components, a fire can burn. But as, as fires burn, and eventually if you've ever had a campfire or you've had a wood fire in your home, you know that when, when the wood is slowly consumed, the fire goes out because there's no fuel anymore. The flame was still there, and, and there's often usually oxygen still there, but there's no more fuel. That's why in the book of Proverbs, and I'm not teaching about this this morning, but to underline this idea, in Proverbs 26 and 20, it says that where no wood is, the fire goes out. And it says, so where there's no tailbearer, the strife ceases. It's a warning about gossip. If you don't put fuel on the fire, the fire will go out. But that's not my lesson, but it's still a really powerful principle. But the, the thing that we're told is that when, when the wood's gone, the fire goes out. In our old house, when we lived over here in Morangaroo, we, we had a wood fire in our house. And we would, you know, on, on a cold winter's night, we would pack as much wood as we could get into that thing to make sure that it burnt through the night. And then when I would get up earlier than my family to go to work in the morning and there was just the coals, I'd add more wood so that it was warm when my wife and my children got up. But if I didn't add any more wood, that fire is going to go out. And ashes, ashes are what is left when there's basically no more fuel. And uh, if ashes are still hot and you add some fuel, you can sometimes get it to burn again. But once it's completely died and it's cold, all you have left is ashes. And in the Old Testament, ashes were symbolic. When they would offer a burnt sacrifice, the Scripture uses the word consume, that God would consume the sacrifice. And so those ashes, which were a residue were a type of an acceptance of that sacrifice, that they had been consumed. They were also sometimes, when ashes from the sin offering were mixed with water, they were involved in cleansing rituals. But perhaps one of the most common uses in the Old Testament was when somebody was in mourning and grief, 
when there was sadness and they'd lost somebody or there was anguish, they would put ashes on their heads, reflecting that there had been a total loss and suffering, that it was finished. Ashes spoke of it was done. It was over. I got to thinking about this, and as a, as a little boy, one of the chores that I had in our home back when it was legal, it's not now, but we, would ha- I, we used to have two bins, and one bin was where all the paper and the cardboard and that sort of stuff went. And one of my jobs was to take that paper waste to go down to the backyard where my dad had put together an incinerator, which is basically, uh, kind of looked like an altar, I guess, this big square made out of blocks, not little bricks like these, but big concrete blocks. And it stood about, oh, no, maybe yay high, and had basically a big hole in the middle. And my job was to put all those papers and all that stuff in there and to burn it. Looking back now, I'm thinking that was crazy. You know, give a little boy a bucket of paper and a box of matches. And, uh, <laughs> but uh, fortunately, I was mostly responsible. Um, but I probably used a lot more matches than were necessary each time. I'd, you know, I'd line them up along the edge of the bricks and go along and light them up like it was a 21-gun salute or something. And uh, if you know about, want to learn more about boys playing with matches, ask Brother Peter why they call him Smokey. He can tell you that story after the service. But what would happen over time is that as I burnt off that paper rubbish, the ash would settle in the bottom of the incinerator. Little by little, that level would rise until it reached a point where my dad decided that we needed to empty the incinerator. We needed to clean that out. Because what happens is, number one, you run out of space to burn the rubbish. But number two, when there's too much ash and you put stuff in there, it all gets dusty and coated and it actually hinders the fire from burning. And it got... We lived in North Queensland. Some of you that have never been to North Queensland or far north and western Australia only hear horror stories of of cane toads. We grew up with them as a way of life in North Queensland. And one day, I remember very clearly, we were emptying out that incinerator. We left it a long time, so the ash was really high, and we would just take some of the bricks out and just with a shovel, just take that ash out of there. And living in the ash at the bottom of the fire, was the biggest cane toad that I have ever seen in my entire life. And I've seen some big ones. It was all grey from the ash, and it was alive and well, enjoying the warmth, being a reptile, enjoying the warmth that was being provided for it on a regular basis. There was enough distance between the fire and the bottom of that incinerator that the toad wasn't destroyed. And I can clearly remember as a young boy running into the house and grabbing my mum and bringing her out and enjoying her horror at the size of this cane toad because that's what boys do but when you look into the scripture when you look into the tabernacle in the old testament where god gave them very specific instructions about what they were to use to make the altar and and the 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 laver or the big wash basin, we might better understand it as. Every little bit of furniture and the accessories was given detail for. And God told them specifically to go with the altar to make out of brass shovels and pans. And those shovels and those pans were for that exact purpose, to take out the ash. Take out the ash. Because you can imagine that thing's burning all the time. 
The ash is filling up. They had to take out the ash from the altar. The, and the priest, there's a lot in this, but I'm going to leave that for when we get into the teaching on it. The priest had to take those ashes out, put them beside the altar. He had to change his clothes, take the ashes and take them way out of the camp so that they would not be connected to anything that was holy or sacred. And when he came back, he had to change his clothes again. It was symbolic of the fact that there were some things that did not belong in the presence and the worship of God. And we, what I believe the Lord has sort of laid on my heart is that ashes that are not removed from the altar, over time reduce the space for the fire and can actually hinder a fire from burning properly. And if we are, according to Romans 12, to be living sacrifices, I want to ask you, if you can today, to think back to the first time you offered yourself as a sacrifice to God. If you've been walking with God for a little while, think back to how bright that flame burnt. Nothing, just surrendering to God. Nothing in the way. No, no experiences, just feeling the presence and the power of God. And how bright that that burns. But over time and experiences, the residue of past sacrifice begins to build up. We think, well, Lord, I've given you so much. Here's my memorial. Here's all the things that I've done, this great big pile of ash. But daily the sacrifice had to come. Daily it had to be offered. Isaiah chapter 61, and I'm nearly done. Isaiah 61 verses 1 to 3. This is the passage that Jesus was quoting from when he read the scripture in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4. In Isaiah 61 and verse 1 it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God and to comfort all them that mourn and to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. I want to stop there for a moment. There, there are, there's direct correlation there's there's one extreme to the other there's beauty for ashes when you look into the original meaning of that word see they put ashes on their heads when they would mourn when you look into the original meaning of that word beauty it's talking about like a headpiece like like something that was worn for a special occasion the lord's going to take away mourning and he's going to put something on that is beautiful the oil of joy again for mourning the garment of praise for the spirit there's a complete transformation that takes place here. Why is he doing that? That they might be called trees of righteousness, that we would bear fruit that pleases him. The planting of the Lord. What's the underlying purpose of all of this? That he might be glorified. That's the purpose. It's not that we might be blessed, although that so often happens along the way because of the goodness of God but it's that he might be glorified. That's why he takes away the ashes and gives us beauty. That's why he gives us joy instead of mourning. That's why he puts on the garment of praise instead of the spirit of heaviness, that we might have an opportunity for him to be manifest. 
for him to be revealed that you, know, you will simply not always have the answers. That's just how it is. And we have to accept that fact. The scripture teaches us that the just shall live by faith. That also means that sometimes you've got to live with some things by faith. Not everything's getting taken away. Not everything's going to be the way that you want it. But you still live by faith. I wonder if you would stand with me this morning. If I can maybe have a musician, please. You know, I'm doing a little bit of research. Like I said, I'm no scientist or expert. But they say when you've got a wood fire, like a heater in your house, that you should leave a little bit of ash. That you shouldn't take it all out. You should leave a little bit there. And I think there's a principle there for us. There needs to be a little bit of a memorial where God brought me from when I've committed myself to him. But if your fireplace is all ash and not much flame, all you're getting is dust and soot. And I want to challenge us this morning, whether you're new to this thing or whether you've walked. In fact, I want to give a particular challenge to those of us that have been in church a long time. How long is it since that fire burnt brightly? When was the last time we got some ash out? Cleaned out that thing, filled that thing with flame. It was burning bright and saying, God, I want to be an opportunity for you to demonstrate what you can do. I want to be a window of opportunity that while I'm breathing, whether I live for 70 years, 80 years, 50 years, whatever, I want to be a window of opportunity that in my short vapor of life, that God would have an opportunity through me to show off that he might be glorified. And we were driving to church this morning. My wife and I picked up Sister Lynette. And while we were coming, Sister Lynette was talking to us about the passage in the Scripture when Jesus was hanging on the cross between two thieves. And I just felt the Lord quicken me and the Holy Ghost to add that to this message while we were talking. Two thieves both deserved their consequences under the legal system of the day. Today, they'd say that's a severe punishment. But under the legal system, they were tried, they were sentenced to crucifixion. One of them is abusive, as it were, toward Jesus. If you're really who you are, who you are that you say you are, get yourself down off the cross and get us down as well. He wanted instant gratification in his suffering. The other one said, what are you talking like that for? We're here because we deserve it. He hasn't done anything wrong. And he turns to the Lord and he says, will you remember me? Doesn't ask for deliverance. Doesn't ask to be taken down from the cross. He says, God, don't forget me. And the Lord says to him, this day, you'll be with me in paradise. That man had a window of opportunity, just a matter of minutes. And he reached out to God and said, somehow, I don't understand. I'm I'm a criminal. I'm broken. I'm corrupt. But if you can, use me as a window of opportunity. I'm here. I want you to lift your hands this morning. Just across this building, let's present ourselves to him. God, I pray, Lord, that your word has reached into our hearts this morning. That, Lord, you've examined us. Lord Jesus, Lord, we want to understand. And I understand why we're like that, Lord, but there are times we have to acknowledge that it's It's bigger than we are. The story is more than we know. There are chapters in the book of our lives that we do not have access to. But you are the author. 
and the finisher of our faith. You are the one that began. You are the one that will finish when you say it is time. So, Lord, today I pray, Lord, that you would search our hearts as we stand here, that we would lay aside our need for understanding, that we would lay aside our our natural desire to be able to explain everything or say, He knows the way that I take. I can't understand God, but you know where I'm going. You know why I'm going through this junk. You know, I didn't do anything. It's not necessarily my fault, but I'm going through it anyway. God, I pray that, Lord, we would present ourselves, as Romans tells us, a living sacrifice. But, Lord, as we do that this morning, we would take a moment to say, Lord, help me to take some ash out, Lord God. Help me to take some of those things out from the past. Lord, I don't want anything living in the ashes of my sacrifice. I don't want anything that shouldn't be there being kept warm and comfortable from a small fire and a lot of ash. Oh God, help me as it were to take that brass shovel and empty out the bottom of the altar this morning. Add fuel. Lord God, add wood, add the Spirit of God. Lord, and be consumed, Lord Jesus, as you answered with fire from heaven with Elijah. Lord, I pray this morning that as we lift our hands and our hearts to you, that you would answer with that Holy Ghost fire, Lord Jesus. God, that you would consume everything. God, I pray, let us burn brightly. Let us lay aside the questions without answers. Let us lay aside the hurts and the heartaches that we cannot work out and say, I'm going to trust Him. I'm going to be faithful. Whether I get my miracle or I don't, I'm going to trust God. God, let me be a window of opportunity for you, Lord Jesus. Let my brokenness, let the corruption that's in me be an opportunity for the glory of God to be manifest. Not that I might be made comfortable, not that I might have all of the things I want, but that you might be glorified, Lord Jesus, we pray. Let's just worship Him as our team leads us in a song this morning.